Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see some uh, some new faces. Excited to meet uh, new people uh, again. It is a delight to be with you this morning, and uh, I'm uh, also heartened to see a lot of folks from my own church uh, that made the uh, 110 mile drive to come over. And you know, when it comes to traveling and meeting with Sovereign Grace folks. Sadly, a hundred miles is no distance at all to drive, uh, but it is so good that we can come and pack out a church hall and hear the gospel proclaimed and know that uh, you're in what I like to call safe territory. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not, this, this is not going to be a hostile audience for this message. And so my job today is to remind you that God is in control. That God is sovereign. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There, there is no uh, tempering language that I'll use to try to soften that simple statement. God is in control. And this morning, I'd like to turn your attention to a pivotal psalm, Psalm 73. And it is in this psalm that so many a modern day heresy get put to bed. So many of the notions that men have dreamed up concerning the God of their imagination get put completely out of the picture with this simple psalm. And I want to take the time today and teach this psalm and perhaps glean from its implication a lesson that we might take with us today. And the simple title of my message today is this. God is good to Israel. God is good to Israel. The word of the Lord found in Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. We will read the entire psalm. And may the Lord be pleased with the public reading of his inspired word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children of your, the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And we trust the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his word this morning for his sake. Amen. Amen. God is good to Israel. And this age-old psalm penned by Asaph is so much like the complaining and the wondering we do today. When we look around this world, this very dark, sin-cursed world, we see so many people seemingly doing well in life. It seems like the more wealthy the person, the more wicked the lifestyle. It would seem that God blesses all of these wicked people with so many things. Now that's the common knowledge. We say things like, wow, you know, look at them. And what does the world say? They say, oh, well, they must be blessed. Oh, that's a blessing. They have stuff. They have a lot of money. That must be a blessing. Oh, they have a lot of cars or they have more than one home or they have, uh, you know, closets full of clothing or, or all of the things that make wealth up in your mind. Now, mind you, if we were sitting in a different country, perhaps wealth would look more like this. Look, they have three pairs of shoes. Look, they have two rooms in their house. But the question and the wondering is the same, no matter the context. Uh, in our in our world, in a, in a first world setting in America, beloved, everyone here is wealthy, relatively speaking. We all have more, so much more than so many countries on earth. People that go to sleep at night wondering where their next meal will come from. And yet the poorest of our poor have access to so many resources in comparison with the rest of the world. But that doesn't stop us from looking at the guy down the street with more than we have. And that doesn't stop us from wondering about that guy. How is it that that God-hating heathen has so much stuff and seemingly no problems, and yet here I am, bad alternator in my car, I'm just trying to go to church, the kids are a mess inside, halfway in bed still, not dressed. I'm trying to figure out how we're going to get to church. And that guy's down the street driving around in a zero-turn tractor he just bought to mow his grass, bragging about how much it costs and how he wrote a check for it. And he hates you, God! Now, the liars among us will say they've never thought that way before. <laughs> Asaph, thousands of years ago, had these same kind of questions for God. He said, and we'll pick up in verse 3, because he prefaces everything with, this is not what I think right now, but this is what I was thinking earlier. 
Okay, God trained me. God showed me some things. But let me tell you where it all started. And for Asaph, his questioning began in verse 3. The writer says this, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Is it not easy? We are sinners. We know uh, that life is easier with certain things in place. We know that. And we know that when we drive up and down the streets of, of nice neighborhoods, even in this community, you, you'll see folks that seemingly have it all together. We look at that and we call it the total package. You know, they've got the yard that's so soft you could let a baby run barefoot through the lawn, you know. Uh, and, and many of us have short weeds, not manicured lawns. <laughs> if you cut it short enough, it's a lawn, right? And... Some of it's humorous, but I'm telling you, there are times when you sit up in bed and think, I've worked 60 hours this week, and where's my electric bill money coming from? Now you're thinking, a sovereign grace preacher preaching about money? Where's this going? You know, here's where it's going. Asaph confessed that he was envious of the God-hating, arrogant crowd that seemed to have all the stuff. He was envious of them. He thought to himself... Why is it that God's people seemingly don't have the best? You know, you've got preachers on TV and other places that are preaching that if you're not rich, there's something wrong with you. That is a twisted, sick theology of uh, make me rich on your love offerings. That's all that is. If you send $1,000 to a TV preacher, congratulations, you've given them $1,000. And they have, they have received your money and you will receive perhaps a slip for your taxes. That's all you're getting. Now, if you're giving away that money to have your electric bill paid, you should have sent the money to the electric company. Uh, don't send these guys any money. Why do we do that? Uh, it blows my mind. Just as a short little side note here, you keep these people on TV so that they can come back in three months to beg you to keep them on TV. The Lord doesn't need TV waves. He doesn't need that. And what they're preaching isn't the gospel anyhow. So if you've got friends and family cutting checks to these guys, tell them to give it a rest. Give it a rest. Now, envious of the arrogant. It wasn't that Asaph thought that they were good. He knew, their, he knew what they were. He knew their testimony. He knew the people down the street didn't have anything to do with God. He knew that their life wasn't uh, any kind of a, an example for, for his children to follow. He, he said, I knew what they are. They're arrogant. But he recognized their prosperity and he asked this question. Does God truly bless the wicked? Now, this is an important question. Now, there are those who go around today calling themselves sovereign grace Christians who teach a doctrine called common grace. Now, this doctrine basically, to wrap it up, says this, that God has a non-saving love and a non-saving grace that he pours into the lives of those he will never save. Now, as I'll give your minds a minute to settle down from that, you know, whatever that was, that, that craziness. But very learned people in high places promote this particular set of doctrines, and people buy into this hook, line, and sinker so that they can say, yeah, we can work together with those false gospel preachers down the street because this is just an area where... This is just about common grace. We're just trying to 
feed the home, feed the homeless and clothe the homeless. And we can partner up with all of these other people. They don't need to believe the gospel like we believe. We'll do, we'll do this work with them because this is just God's non-saving grace at work. Beloved, there's no such thing as non-saving grace. I'm going to say it again. There's no such thing as a grace through God, through Christ, that isn't saving grace. There, there is no grace, there is no love from God being poured down into the reprobate wicked, those who will never believe. That's not how grace works. Listen, Christ came to save us. And what does the scripture say? Our salvation is by grace through faith, yet not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. So everything that flows from Christ his love for his people is what motivates him to save us. And so if he loves you, he will save you. Everybody with me? God's love motivates the salvific work of Christ. In love, he predestined us. So there is no love for God for the reprobate wicked. Now you might ask, who are the reprobate wicked? You don't know them and I don't either. So what do we do? We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. I'm not, I'm not the guy who decides whether or not you're reprobate wicked. That's not my call. Uh, now, there might be some groups out there that say, yeah, you can know. No, you can't. You can't. My job is to preach and to tell everyone who's hungry and thirsty to come and buy and drink and eat without price because Christ has paid the full way. And the thirsty and the hungry and the needy that he calls by his spirit in the preaching of the gospel, they come and they eat. And they find rest for their souls, do they not? But that doesn't stop God's people from looking around and seeing all the prosperity of this wicked world. And we fall into this. Sometimes in times of weakness, sometimes, sometimes you know, we're just looking around and thinking, why is it so hard? What are we doing wrong? Look at this, look at this guy down the street. I just read in the newspaper all the goofiness he's been involved in. And he's got, a, he's got like 15 cars and a business that's booming down the street and all this stuff. And God's people seemingly have what? Asaph's asking these honest questions. He says in verse 4 about the, the wicked and the prosperous, he says, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. There was a day, not so many centuries ago, that to be fat meant to be wealthy. Now it typically doesn't mean that. Not in this country, anyhow. Uh, it's easy. It's easy to put on weight in this country where you sit and type on a, a keyboard and eat like you're working in a field. Uh, you know, it's very easy now. But in this day, food was a luxury. If you were a, that's where the term fat cat came from. Anyone ever heard that term? The fat cats? You know, poor folks couldn't afford to waste food like that. Food was a, a, a was a scarce thing. And so wealthy people typically had a, a more rounded figure. So their bodies were fat and sleek. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. So they, the worry factor, at least from Asaph's perspective, looking into their lives, they lived a carefree life. You know, not paying God any attention, not worrying about the spiritual things, just living for the moment, seizing up all the, all the fleshly desires they could amass. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So Asaph is becoming this social justice warrior here. He sees God's people many times in squalor, not having everything that the, the, the wicked, wealthy folks have. And he starts to ask these questions, and he says this about, he says this about the wicked in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. 
Violence covers them as a garment. So they're treating people badly because they've got all they need and they don't care about their neighbor. They're, they're prideful and arrogant. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Now he's just making the point that they have absolutely more than they seemingly need. Remember the time in the New Testament when Jesus tells the story of a man who had a big harvest and he says, I've got to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And, you know, and meanwhile, God is sort of looking down saying, you're a fool. And those big old barns filled with all that stuff, that's going to be what your kids are fighting over because I'm taking you out tonight. And it's all in there. And we plan like this, don't we? The wicked, they just pile it up, so says Asaph. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. Boy, you ever see, you know, the, the wealthy folk have a lot of leisure time. And so they've come up with a lot of cool ways to pass the time. Um, who in the who in their right mind 300 years ago as they were working 14-hour days in a field just to get enough food together to feed their families would have ever thought that grabbing a stick and going and hitting a ball around in a yard into a little hole in the, in the, in the ground would be leisurely? Nobody would have done that. Uh, and so rich folks invent all of these things to pass the time. They have all of this money. They need to spend it. Uh, the idea of going on uh, massively long touring vacations and all of the such. ASAP, their people had their own version of this. They would have had homes outside of the city. They would have had massive estates. If they were into agriculture, they would have had a place to live inside cities. They would have had all of these things going on in his day too. Servants and food and, and, and perhaps feasting would have been commonplace. And Asaph says, the fat cats seem to just get fatter. And the whole time they're shaking their fist in the face of God. He goes on, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. So not only do they have all that they could ever need in this world, but they seem to put their thumb down on the poor and the needy. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. Now we see something interesting. This arrogance toward the things of God and their lack of accountability. They say, I don't need anything from God. I think back, and this is an old example, but many of you might remember this, when the lead singer of the Beatles, John Lennon, announced on American television that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. Some of you might remember that. Now, mind you, that's the attitude that Asaph is addressing right here. This idea that I've got all I need and I earned it all myself and this is my life and I don't need any kind of God or any kind of religion to buttress what I have. I am my own man. That's the wickedness that Asaph sees in these people. As a matter of fact, he says this in a very poetic way in verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Tongue strutting. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? Running their mouth on God. Running their mouth on God. Verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So now Asaph is mistakenly saying this. He's saying, you know, God, if the wicked are doing so well and have so much stuff, your people are going to look at them and say, What's the point? I, I need to be like them. I don't find any fault in that. They're fat. They're eating good. They've got houses and lands and fortunes and all the stuff. What's wrong with that? So Asaph says that could very well be the conclusion here. Let's go on. And they say, 
Now, speaking now, this is the wicked folks saying this. How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? So now they've even got the nerve to question the veracity of God, saying, you're not truthful. You don't know all things. And then we see in verse 12, Asaph wrapping it up. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. Those three words typify the American lifestyle right now. Always at ease. When you drove to the assembly this morning, you drove by countless homes, even some open businesses where people were just living life, no questions at all about eternity, no thought given whatsoever to any spiritual questions or any spiritual realities. Everybody just living to get that next influx of cash so that their life here on good old planet Earth could keep on spinning the way they think it ought to spin. And so these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then Asaph begins to share with us the despair he felt in his own heart as he began to ponder these things. Mind you, he has to hit the bottom before the Lord in, in mercy picks him up, scrapes him off the concrete, and starts to show him some stuff. But listen, here's his thought process. Verse 13, he says this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and have washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had, oh no, he stops right there, and he, he's just pouring out his heart. He says, this is how I felt. I felt like everything I was doing, everything that I believed was all in vain because I didn't seem to have the life that those wicked people had. And yet I was doing what I could to, to serve the Lord and to please the Lord. And, and it seemed like everything I was doing was working against me. And so he just opens up and says, this is how I felt. Now, many of us have been in a similar position. And in a sovereign grace assembly, it's not hard for me to tell you that from a human's perspective, the church growth movement looks at my church and calls me a failure. How many massive, huge, beautifully ornate and adorned cathedrals did we all have to drive by to meet in this humble meeting hall today? The church growth movement says we're failures. They say we're not connecting with the people. We're not relevant. We're not seeker sensitive. We're not giving the people what they want. Well, what the people want is beer and circus and a ball thrown around in a field. But what the Lord sends to his people is living water and the thirsty will come and drink. So yes, we are failures in the, in the world's eyes. And we ought to, we know that many of us have dealt with the temptation, especially those of you who've ever been in ministry and pastored and helped to shepherd a small group of people. You have this tendency to think, what could I do differently to make my church kind of bigger and nicer like the one down the street? I know. We'll throw away our pamphlets that have the songs written on them and we'll put the words on the screen behind me. That'll do it. And then you can just play the game from here. And you'll have this constant temptation to try to do more like the other guys. Why? Because you're just like Asaph. You're a human being. And you see the so-called successes of your neighbor and you begin to inquire and you say, why can't I have that? 
Asaph almost went into despair. You saw what he said. He said, this is all in vain. What am I doing? And beloved, some of you might feel the same way at times. We don't talk a whole lot about our feelings in Sovereign Grace circles. We don't. And for good reason. Your feelings will lead you astray. Your feelings will, will condemn you if that's all you've got to go on. But I'm telling you, you still have to deal with the way you feel. And how do you do that? You go to an objective source of truth. You don't go to someone else's mushy-gushy feelings. You don't go to a little feeling circle. You come to his word. That's what Asaph did. Listen, he almost despaired. And he said, but when I thought how to understand this, well, back up, verse 15. If I had, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So now Asaph stops everything and says, all right, guys, this is what I thought. This is how I felt. I felt like everything I was doing for the Lord was just a big joke, that it was in vain. But listen now, I never said any of that. If I would have said that, it would have been a betrayal of God because here's what God showed me. And then we continue on. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17 is the linchpin. Catch verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Sovereign Grace folks driving to church, seeing all the successes, the packed parking lots, the fancy buildings, all the stuff that people knee-jerkedly think make a church a church. And you see that and you think, you know, God, if we're preaching the truth, how come we don't have all that? And you might catch yourself asking those questions. You know, I want, I think that it'd be okay, God, if we had some of that. You're in an Asaph moment right there. You're in an Asaph moment. And do you know, when I find myself in an Asaph moment, the best cure is when I go to a sanctuary. Now, what is the sanctuary in this case? Well, in Asaph's case, it, it was uh, a, a place of worship. And remember, in the Old Testament, the types and the shadows were always there in physical form. And so in our day, it's a spiritual reality. What is our sanctuary? Who has become our dwelling place? The Lord is our refuge and dwelling place. And as we go into the scripture, what do we see? We see exactly what Asaph saw. He went into the sanctuary. We go into the word. And together we both discern the end of the wicked. Verse 18 starts to paint the picture of God's intention for the wicked of this world. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And so you see the wicked, the God mocker, the one who looks at you and your theology and what you believe and says you're wicked or you're crazy or there's something wrong with you. I could never worship a God who would teach what you say he teaches. driving their fancy cars and they're living in their big houses and having all of the worldly success. And what does the scripture call every bit of that? The common grace crowd would say, that's the non-saving love of God, blessing their temporal efforts. The scripture says God has set their feet in slippery places so he can throw them down to ruin. Your big fancy car? Slippery places. 
your big old house, your God-hating attitude, all the stuff you think makes you who you are, slippery places. God is setting you up for a greater fall to the praise of his own justice. Verse 19, how, are, how they are destroyed in a moment. Isn't it something? Have all the wealth you want in this world. Have all the stuff you think you can afford. And the moment your heart stops beating, it's gone. You can't take it with you. You have nothing of eternal import if you don't have Christ and the full pardon of your sins through his imputed righteousness. You have nothing. You are a pauper. You have all of the clothing of a prince and all of the substance of a pauper. You have nothing inside. You're a beggar of beggars dressed in the robes of a king because you have all of the world's luxuries, but you have nothing but slippery places. You'll be destroyed in a moment, swept away, the scripture says, utterly by terrors. Oh, beloved, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Again, I draw your attention to this notion. You will experience someone coming down the way teaching this kind of stuff, that God has a, a non-saving love for the reprobate wicked, that God has a, 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 a non-saving grace for these people. Listen, how do you explain, how is it that God can despise the wicked as phantoms and yet still have a love for them? You see, there is no love. We need to realize that just because somebody's driving the fancy cars and having the big bank accounts and all this stuff, these things aren't a sign of God's blessing. Not necessarily. Because if stuff was always a sign of God's blessing, then that means every single believer who's currently going without food in various countries of this world are under the curse of God for their lack of stuff. There is no stuff blessing. It's not inherent in stuff. You might be blessed with something. That is true. But it's not necessarily a blessing from God just to have stuff. Why? Because everybody in Psalm 73, all the fat cats here had stuff. And yet the scripture says God despised them as phantoms. He says, goes on, uh, he says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, he says this now in confession. He says, God, I know now what you mean. This stuff doesn't mean you love them. It means you're simply illustrating their arrogance. You're, you're amplifying the sound and the cause of their arrogance so that when the hammer falls, you will be just. Because the scripture says he stores up wrath for the wicked on the day of evil. He has nothing but evil stored up for those who shake their fist in his face. And here Asaph says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. So now he begins to confess to God, oh God, I'm so sorry that I thought that just because my neighbor had more stuff than I do, that you love them and that you despised me. Help me, God, understand that just because they've got a house full of stuff or a bank account full of money or all of these things, that doesn't mean that you don't love your people. That doesn't mean that you don't have a good in mind for your own people. He goes on to say this. He says, I was like a beast toward you. So he confesses that his complaining and his murmuring and his uneasiness toward the way God was basically governing everything was a brutish idea in his mind. He said, God, forgive me. And then 
it's as though God himself reaches down and puts a warm blanket around Asaph because now Asaph's mind is settled knowing that God is in complete control and that God only gives these things to the wicked so that he might illustrate his own wrath and make his power known. He says this of God in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Hear this now. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The wicked have things. The, 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 the evildoer may have more power than you do. It seems like in political spheres, the most wicked, ruthless men become kings and presidents and leaders. And we make the joke, and it's not even a joke, but we say things like politicians are liars. And then we go, ha, 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 and then we realize, wait a minute, it's not really a joke. Look around the world at the wickedness and the political systems and the corruption, and it seems like the meaner you are, the farther you go in this world. The more people you're willing to flush down the toilet, the quicker you'll get to the top. And the scripture here says this, they'll have all the ease they want in this life. But the scripture says it's all swept away with terrors at the end. But notice the, the distinction he makes in verse 26 concerning God's people. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, I'm going to die one day. Just like the guy down the street, he's going to be in his gold gilded bed and he'll die. I'm going to be on my bed mat and I'm going to die. He's going to be utterly swept away by terrors. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, in this world, we might not have all the fancy stuff. We might not be the most popular. As a matter of fact, Jesus promised us, if they hated me, they will hate you. And whether or not our current political climate is in an indication of where things are going to go or not, who knows? I'm not one of these guys that's currently writing a book that says that Jesus is coming again in, in 21 months, so buy my book. You know, That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to date set or to say that now's the end of time and all that other stuff. Nobody knows that but God. But here's what I do know. Throughout history... Those who preach the true and saving gospel have found themselves at odds with just about everybody else. There have been times where uh, people who have preached the gospel would have been martyred, would have been murdered in vicious attacks by mobs. Even some of our own disciples we read about in the gospels, they, they met very violent ends for preaching the, the true and saving gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our own Savior barely had a roof over his head when he'd go around preaching and teaching and working all the works God would have him work. And yet, if we have nothing in this world of which to brag or boast, we have everything with Christ. He is our strength and our portion, not just in this life, but he's our strength and our portion forever. And as we said last night about Jesus being the, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, all the yeses and all the amens we could ever give, all come from the source, which is Christ. He is our strength and our portion. Verse 27, Asaph sort of sums it all up in the following verses. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And so no matter what stuff you have, if you do not have Jesus, you have nothing of eternal import. Worldly treasures, what are they? They're phantoms, are they not? Are they not here today and gone tomorrow? 
You have nothing if you don't have Christ. The Bible says you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. This should send shudders through our bones because no one is faithful to God in their own strength. He puts an end to those who are unfaithful to him. So how is it that we can find faith? How is it that we can find peace with God? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We think when we murmur and we get into that complaining spirit, you know, that idea that uh, everything is bad, everything is awful, my neighbors have everything, I have nothing, or the church down the street seems to have all the people and we don't have anybody but empty chairs in the same old crowd. Let me tell you, when you think you have nothing, look to Christ. Look to his promises. Yeah, you might have a big old crowd down the street, but what are those poor souls being fed? What are they being told? Are they being told the true gospel? Are they being comforted in the true gospel of an accomplished redemption? Or are they being spoon-fed some man-centered hog's will that can't save a soul because it's not the truth? They think they have everything, but listen to me. When you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Oh, beloved, we are, we are rulers and princes. We have it all. It doesn't look like it now. It doesn't look like we have everything now, but we have Christ, the pearl of great price. And we're going to a city whose builder and maker is God. And it's all because of the finished work of Jesus. And listen, whom have I in heaven but you, says Asaph. Is that not the cry of God's people? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What are we speaking about here? Regarding salvation, part of repentance is knowing that there's nothing else that can save you. And, and I'll close with this line because it's important, this line of thought. Because for many people, the idea of repentance means to turn their backs on all sin and, try, and live a perfect life. And you'll hear ministers say, you've got to repent of sin in order to be saved. And doesn't it sound, I mean, we even sing it in one of our famous hymns. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Thanks, Jesus. I'll take it from here. No, that's not biblical repentance. And how do we know this? Because we have a pulse and we live and we know we can be super duper sorry for sin and yet we're still going to commit it each and every day. And if you're only saved by turning your back on sin, then we're all lost. What do we repent of? The scripture says we must repent of dead works. What is, what is Asaph saying here? He says, whom, and there's nothing else on earth I desire besides you. He's saying the only saving good comes from God. There's nothing else I can desire that will give me this portion forever. God must be my portion forever. So I'm turning my back on works righteousness. I'm turning my back on all the things that I thought made me good in the sight of God. And I'm counting them as loss for the sake of the excellency of Christ. The Lord is my strength and my portion. My good works are nothing. There's nothing good in me. I know that in me no good thing dwells. 
But I'm so thankful, just as Asaph began to see this as the Lord in mercy reached down and showed him some things. I'm glad that in God's word he opened up and and exposited to us that the Lord is merciful enough to show us a few things from time to time. He is my strength and my portion. I look around the world and see prosperity, but what I'm looking at is a temporal reality that will soon pass. The Lord may bless us all with more riches, and if he does, use those things to his glory. But if the Lord doesn't give you anything more than your daily bread, know that you have a home prepared. You have a reward waiting for you where where, where rust and moths cannot corrupt. Reserved in heaven, the scripture says, for you. And not because of you, but because of another. I'm so thankful. Just as Asaph closes, I better read it all so I can say I read it all. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Do you see? That's the language of biblical repentance. That's saying, I'm turning my back from works from tithing, from church membership, and all the other things I thought made me goody-goody, or my, 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 my suit and my tie, or my shiny shoes, or my fancy car I pull in on Sunday morning, or that big $100 bill I throw in the offering plate in public so everybody can see how, how much I've gotten, how much I love Jesus. I'm turning my back on all that goofiness, and I'm saying the Lord alone is my refuge. I'm a wretch, but he saves wretches like me. Praise the living God. The Lord loves his people. You may not have the finest things in this world, but given the fact that we're going to live together forever in glory one day, we're going to look back on this time and we're going to say, as the Apostle Paul said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Who have I on, and who, do, who do I have in earth or in heaven but you, O God? He is good to his people. So when you find yourself down and out, wondering about such things, Think of Asaph. Know that he had the same problems you did, and the Lord showed him some mighty things. All the stuff that this world has is but an illusion. And if you've got it, use it for God's glory. If you don't have it, don't let it bother you. Know that the Lord's got a wonderful eternity planned for you, that he is faithful, that he will carry you through, and that no one shall take you out of his hands. All right. Praise the Lord. Lord, we pray that you'd add a blessing to what was said today. Lord, that we would take this and, and, and apply it to our hearts, Lord, so that we might not find ourselves discouraged, but that we would be encouraged by a God who will never let us go. We thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.